Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, uh, February the 7th, 2023. It's turning into Innovation Tuesday. We're talking in all sorts of ways about our innovation economy. We started today with a conversation with a very distinguished security expert, Bruce Schnei, he has a new book out, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. It's both a warning about innovation and also in its own way an embrace. This has been a theme that we've covered all sorts of ways in the show. Uh, Bruce was on the the, the, the Keenon show when it was a TechCrunch show back in 2012. So it's nice to meet back up with him uh, after 11 years and his issues when he talked to me. He was talking to me back then about a book called Liars and Outliers, uh, enabling the trust that society needs to thrive. It's similar. Nothing much has changed over the last 11 years. We need innovation. Everybody recognizes it. And yet it also fosters all sorts of problems. Later tonight, Joe Biden is going to give what uh, John Cassidy uh, in the New Yorker called his big innovation speech, his opportunity to explain to America how he's an innovator. It'll be interesting to see how he does. Um, and we're continuing this theme of innovation with my guest today. She's part of the Singularity Group, Singularity University, which claims that it gets to the future first, that it teaches and understands innovation. It asks its students and partners to step into the future. And uh, we're thrilled that we have Darlene Dam, who is um, the Singularity Chair, uh, Faculty Chair and Head of Social Impact at uh, Singularity University, joining us from the South Bay, just down from where I am in San Francisco. Uh, Darlene, uh, good to talk to you. Um, do you think that we live in an innovation economy? I guess you guys at Singularity believe that because that's the essence of your mission. And if it is the case, what exactly is an innovation economy? Yeah, I definitely think we do. Um, at Singularity, we help people understand exponential technologies and how they're impacting the world and how to use exponential technologies to create new products and services that are better for the world. Um, all of that is possible because of the way exponential te technology behaves. And um, in particular, it as more people have access to technology and as technologies allow ideas, um, research, uh, possibilities, knowledge to spread around the world, literally at light speed. We live in a world where anybody can be an innovator. And, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years, that wasn't possible at all. You could really only innovate if you had the resources, if you had the power, if you were an established uh, company, government organization in the industry. So our world has changed so much since then. And um, it, just the fact that people all over the world, in countries all over the world, can come up with ideas and bring them out into the world, either as a company, as a service, as a product, as a nonprofit, uh, as a movement. Um, that's the world we live in today. And it's a world uh, 
overflowing with innovation. Mm, uh, it's interesting the, the way you put it. it. It sounds a little outdated. I mean, it's the kind of thing I would have expected someone from Singularity to talk about 10 years ago. Haven't we had enough warnings about the destructive quality of innovation in a Elon Musk and Uber and Mark Zuckerberg and the so-called hacking of our democracy. Um, are you also at Singularity, are you fearful of what you call exponential technologies? Uh, Bruce Schneier is. He, he fears, for example, that chat GPT, the latest sensation in Silicon Valley, is going to hack and destroy democracy. Yeah, yeah. So if you... Um... If you think about innovation, if you think about technology and, you know, going back when I was saying 20, 40 years ago, only a few people could innovate. Um, that meant the innovation was highly controlled. Right. And now we live in a world where billions of people can innovate and billions of people have access to exponential technologies. So it's a double edged sword sword. On the one hand, you have a lot more people who can innovate solutions to curing diseases, to solving hunger to um, creating new educational technologies that will help people. But also you have billions of people who can use technologies in a way that could be either intentionally or unintentionally harmful. So um, that's the reality we live in. And our world is now trying to catch up to uh, how does a system like that work where everybody's powerful? How do humans fit into all this, uh, Darlene? Um, we had the futurist Margaret Heffernan on the show, her book, uh, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, still reminds us that ultimately it's not generative AI, at least in her mind, not exponential technology, but uh, the future remains up to us human beings who haven't changed over the last 40 or 400 or perhaps even 4,000 years. Um, so broadly, how do humans play into the future? I think, I mean, there's a lot of ways at looking at that question. I mean, we have a smaller group of people that are building those technologies, right? So they're obviously influencing how those technologies behave in the world and how they behave with people. Um, on the other hand, at an individual level, we each have choices in how we engage with technologies ourselves. Is it, uh, maybe you could elaborate a little more on what you're trying to get at. Well, that ultimately it doesn't matter what technology you have, Margaret suggests, ultimately it's human agency, um, which determines how technologies uh, turn out. And we're in control of the technology rather than the technology is in control of us. I'm just curious as you're, you have a senior role at Singularity at the university, which is one of the, the centers for innovation and uh, exponential thinking in Silicon Valley, what your position is on it. It sounds to me as if you're, it's not something you've given a great deal of thought to. Well, Singularity exists to help people, leaders, innovators, startups to understand those technology and build solutions that are for the betterment of the world. So, um, for example, we've had about a thousand innovators come to our program for startups. And out of that, we have 200 companies that are working at the in intersection of social impact and technology. 
Um, that ranges every, from everything from our innovator, Lala Win from Myanmar, who built uh, an ed tech company there that's helped hundreds of thousands of kids get education even during the war that happened there, even during the pandemic. Um, to uh, there's companies working in biotech, in ag tech, in you know climate technology. So our one of our main goals is to actually help people understand the role technology can play in solving problems, and it has a particular role in being able to solve social problems that didn't exist before. But um, also in general, we provide a broad education about the impact of technology on society, on business, on ethics, to help people who are leaders watch out for some of the potential problems that might come up. Are you, uh, we, we did a show actually again about 10 years ago uh, with a man called uh, um, Salim uh, Ishmael. Uh, I don't think he's with Singularity anymore. Back then he was senior, he was working with Peter, Peter Diamantis. And he talked to me about how the future of the university could be singularity and your singularity model. Are you like a university? Do you take undergraduates? Are you accredited? No, um, we're not accredited. And our students range from, uh, you know, young adults at age 18 or 19. And we've had students up into their 60s and 70s. So... A, a traditional university is trying to give people knowledge about different areas, right, of, of the world. Singularity exists because we're trying to solve real problems. So um, if you come to Singularity and you leave with a startup, then, you know, you get an A+. plus. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not, that. that's our thinking is like, you build something real in the world that's going to matter and make a difference if you come to us. Um, we, a question here is, what does the future of education look like? And I think in the long term, it's gonna be about solving real problems in the world and helping people solve problems in the world. Um, but right now we're- Well, hasn't uh, that always been, the, there's nothing new about that. There's always been problems associated with hu human beings and, and societies and, and both in an individual and a collective sense and education in part is designed to help fix those problems. There's, that's not new, is it? No, no, there's certain universities, you know, I think Stanford was famous for uh, coming out, you know, establishing, it, establishing itself on the West Coast as a practical university, for example. Um, but even, you know, there, you're, you're going there and you're learning about a lot of different things, right? And then you graduate and then you jump into the work world. Although they, there's also a lot of startups and innovation that have come out of there. But what Singularity does is you come to our program and you learn information uh, right now applicable to the problem that you care about. And we want you to leave with a concrete um, idea about how you're gonna address that problem. And then to work with our network and our alumni, which is now in the hundreds of thousands of people to collaborate on solving that problem. So most of the people who come to your university already have degrees from somewhere else. They tend to be a bit older. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say, well, we have programs, executive programs that are aimed at people who are already leaders in existing companies. Um, and then, you know, a startup innovator can be uh, any age, really. We did some, you mentioned Stanford. We've done a number of shows with Stanford faculty, three Stanford, very prominent actually 
academics wrote a book suggesting that kids at Stanford need more of an ethical education, especially if they're in the innovation space. And Stanford, of course, is one of the leading places to, to do business and tech. D do you provide all your incoming students with some sort of ethical guide, some sort of ethical instruction? Yeah, so there's a couple um, ways that we, we do that. Um, one is that we have a course like at our executive program that my colleague Alex Rubesum teaches where uh, she actually has the class uh, program and give data to an artificial intelligence that will make decisions about a business. So for example, it might decide who to hire, right? It, or um, uh, another action. And, and she makes the participants give data based on what they think will make a good hire. So it, it it's aimed to show that behind artificial intelligence, somebody's sitting there deciding, you know, what makes a good employee. And a CEO might not know that. So it, it, it's designed to really uh, pull back the curtain so that leaders can actually see uh, what is going into this technology. Um, another point where this comes up is, uh, you know, we're teaching people how to solve social problems. So we have speakers, um, you know, we work with the World Food Program, we work with nonprofits. So we have people coming into the classroom who are working in the field on solving a social problem that are uh, naturally always thinking about the ethical issues. And then finally, um, so my own background, I'm a history major. I worked in the nonprofit sector and I came to Singularity as a student in 2011 and we launched uh, a company called Matternet, which launched the drone transport industry. And in that case, here you had someone who didn't belong, a history major with a nonprofit degree launching a robotics company. But going through that experience myself, I realized all of these people who are working in social impact with nonprofits, with humanitarian organizations, we need them building the technology, right? Because they're already, they already have that ethical mindset. They already have that mindset that is about helping people, thinking through your actions, trying to really solve the problem while not creating other problems in the process. So part of why I work full time at Singularity now is because I believe we need those people building the next generation of technology companies um, and you know, building the next industries. One of the areas of expertise that you focus on is moonshot thinking. Um, what exactly does moonshot thinking mean and how do you become a moonshot thinker? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, different people, you know, that have talked about moonshots over the years. John F. Kennedy, uh, Google has a moonshot factory. Um, our founder, Peter Diamandis, is really the person who brought this uh, thinking to singularity. So it's trying to solve a massive, big, seemingly impossible problem that's out of reach uh, that matters. Um, but so I'll say that's that's sort of like a generic definition of it. But at Singularity, we aren't just saying go do solve a moonshot because it's big and, and you know it, it's great to do something ambitious. We're saying solve that moonshot because the technology now exists today to do it. And specifically, 
exponential technology and the way that the price performance curve of exponential technologies behave, you know, initially you build a technology product, it's expensive, right? It's, um, it doesn't work too well. Uh, but over time, due to Moore's law, due to the way information flows around our world, due to converging technologies, the price will rapidly fall while you can scale and reach billions of people, right? And, you know, that's actually, it's the technology and the way technology behaves that once you start to understand that, you can take a huge ambitious problem like a moonshot and see that we can actually solve it. It, it, it. It's a way of thinking. It's not just doing it for the sake of doing something big. It's because we can now actually solve these problems. Do you think Joe Biden should be talking about exponential technology moonshots tonight? I, I'm sure he won't. Uh, and I'm sure if he did, he probably it would sound a little odd coming from him. But um, do you think politicians address this moonshot issue and even understand what exponential technology is? I, I actually think a lot of government leaders do understand it. I think Biden understands it. Um, but it's a, it, it, it takes a while to explain, right? And um, it, it's not something that you can convey in two seconds, right? So, it, but it, everyone who's living in the world today is living during a time, you know, when I was born, if you wanted to build an industry, you were thinking this is a hundred years, this is several generations. Now we see industries being born in like two to three years. So our imaginations have not caught up with what is possible with the technology. Um, at the same time, as we have more and more examples of these technologies appearing and coming into the world, our mindsets will change with that. So which particular technologies do you think offer, um, Darlene, the most exciting opportunities? I know you've given a lot of thought to AI, a lot of AI skeptics, but I think a lot of people, even if you're skeptical, you acknowledge that we, we're, we seem to be now on the verge, if not in our AI age, particularly with generative uh, uh, AI and, and, and conversational GPT and all the rest of it. Uh, is, it, is it an AI? Is it in biotech? Um, is it perhaps in space exploration? I know your founder, Peter Diamantis, um, has an authority in, in all these areas. Yeah, yeah. So there's some technologies that I, I love because they're interesting. And then there's some that I love because I think they'll have a big social impact on the world. Um, and then also, it's actually not just one. It's how these technologies are working together. But uh, for the one of the technologies I love is quantum technologies, and again, this one is you know it's in development. But but that sounds a uh, uh, sorry to be rather cruel, um, Darlene. But it sounds like the Brazilian economy, where we always joke, uh, it's always in the future, it's always on the horizon. Ever since I've been in tech, which is now twenty years, I've heard about quantum being the next big thing, but it never quite is. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it's true. It's been talked about for a long time, but if you look at the number of large companies that are working on it and the number of startups that are working on it, um, progress is happening. And with these technologies, it's hard to say, will they be here in five months, five years? But I, I don't think we can now go past they'll be here in 10 years. They're gonna be here, right? 
and they're already starting to creep into it. So you think life. quantum is inevitable in the yes. long run? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, there was, as Keynes, of course, famously said, in the long run, we're all dead, maybe through quantum. What, what does quantum do if it happens? Why is it such a, uh, an exciting, dramatic, exponential technology? Yeah, so there was a, uh, an article I read, I think, five years ago by um, D-Wave. And I'm using quantum technologies versus quantum computing because, you know, there's a debate about what is real quantum computing happening. But, um, but they, were, they gave an example of a problem that could be solved. And it, it, it was, say, there's a disaster or like a tidal wave hits a, hits a city in Japan or in, in Bangkok. And the goal is to think about where every single car is in that city. Say that, that those cars are on GPS or they're tagged somehow. And the quantum technology was figuring out where to tell each car to go, giving them two different options, um, within, not even within a second, right? And even then personalizing that. So maybe you, your kid is in daycare, maybe you're at work versus home. But, it, it, you know, so the technology is being developed. But what struck me about that example, I was like, there are problems that we don't even think about solving today because we didn't even think we could manage the complexity. And so these are what uh, we, we might half seriously describe as unknown unknowns or known unknowns. Yeah. Or like uh, we do some work with the World Food Program. Right. They are they're part of the United Nations. They're dealing with disasters, wars all over the world. They manage fleets of jets, uh, tanker ships, warehouses. And um, I had a conversation with one of their employees where they're thinking about how do you personalize food for a child at the end at the end of that whole chain. So maybe there's a child who can get their meal at school. There's another who needs it brought to their home because it's in a war zone. There's a, maybe you need different ingredients it, it, because a child has a, a health condition, right? Um, and at the same time, they're trying to source their food from local farmers. So th think about that on a global scale, it, you know, a, a personalizing a food for a child and finding the, the best way to, to support local farmers and find the best price at a global scale around the world. Think about the data uh, challenge behind that. But those are the types of problems we can solve. Or, you know, like NVIDIA is building a digital twin of the planet right now, right? And we're, we're moving into a world where we can solve problems that we, we just didn't even know were problems <laughs> because we, it, our imaginations weren't there yet. I, I, I take your point, and yet, you know, we're talking today, another tragic day when it comes to earthquakes, five, maybe 10,000 people killed in Turkey and Syria, yeah. uh, where many of the most traditional issues are still unaddressed, hunger, homelessness, yeah. starvation. Yeah. We did a show on the growth of unhappiness with the CEO of, uh, uh, of the Gallup poll, and he says that this, the new prevalence of unhappiness in the world is in part driven by hunger. So for all these new technologies, a lot of the old problems still exist, Darlene, don't they? You're a historian, so you know this stuff as well as anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. There's 
problems that exist today that we're struggling with. Um, but there's also a lot of progress that's happening. There's a lot of good stories. And of course, those stories don't make it into the news. But also, I read recently, if you were born 300 years ago at the start of the Industrial Revolution, 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty. There was, um, I think, a 50% chance you would die by the age of five. Now, today, it's about 10% of the world in extreme poverty. Right, and it's uh, over 95% of people live to the age of five. So like, it, it's also easy to not see the progress. Um, why, why are we so, um, Darlene, why are we so miserable? P uh, Peter Diamantis, I've known him for years. Yeah. He is remarkably cheerful for better or worse. Some people like him for his cheerfulness, some people don't. What is it about the modern condition in the 2020s that makes us so miserable that always see the glasses half empty well i mean i don't know if that's true i, I i'm not miserable <laughs> you well, know also, i mean you, know, you teach at singularity and 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 your business is the business of optimism you live in sunnyvale in silicon valley where most people are cheerful um, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not critical. I mean, I wish if, if everyone lived in Sunnyvale and everyone went to Singularity, the world would be a much more, certainly a much more cheerful place. But, but I guess I want to question that because, you know, I grew up in a, a rural town of 2000 people where we were pretty happy <laughs> too, right? I, I work with innovators. Where did you grow up? Uh, Cambria, California. It, have you, I don't, you may not have heard of it, but... No, um, I haven't. That's explains yeah, exactly. the science. Whereabouts is it? Um, and I live so, in California. Yeah, it's in San Luis Obispo County. Okay, yeah, I just drove from San Francisco to LA at the weekend, so I probably went through it. You did. You actually did, and you didn't even notice it. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, but, but that's actually, I mean, it's a really important question because, uh, I, I mean, if people want to know how to be... Uh, happy. I think there is this trend that I've noticed where uh, a lot of different books and people are telling people that being happy is uh, you need to sort of think and work through your internal problems. But actually the happiest people I know are the ones who are out there on the ground solving problems. If it's maybe it's a problem in their own life or it's a problem in their community or the world. But, but I think there's a tendency to not take action in our world right now for some yeah, and reason. That comes back, and maybe I didn't express myself clearly yeah. uh, on action. We did uh, an, uh, a show with Mauro Puccini, who's the head of marketing at Pepsi. He also, like, um, like uh, Margaret Heffernan, talks about uh, the human side of innovation. So ultimately, it always comes down to our attitude. I wonder... Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I wonder, uh, Darlene, um, what uh, Ray Kurzweil would say about this. He was on the show, uh, again, more than 10 years ago. Uh, the man, I'm not sure if he invented the term singularity, he certainly popularized it close to uh, your founder, Peter Diamantis. I know he was involved with singularity at the beginning. Of course, he might even reject uh, uh, Keynes's notion in the long run, we're all dead. Um, the word singularity implies, for better or worse, this merging of 
the human and the machine. Are you comfortable with the term? Do you think that our new age might ultimately, by 21st, 22nd century historians, be described as the age of singularity? Mm, that's interesting. Um, so Kurzweil definitely sees a future where humans and machines merge, right? There's some people think the robots are going to take over the humans or the humans will take over the robots, but Kurzweil thinks we'll integrate. Um, I see that happening around us, you know, all the, it, even though we're physically separated from our computers and our devices, the time we spend on them, how they're getting smaller and smaller, how we're starting to implant these technologies, how, uh, you know, we're, we're combining our, we're giving our ideas to, to AIs that are then giving ideas back to us. So there's definitely this, Merging. Yeah, and, and, and Kurzweil was on the show back then talking about his new book, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed, which suggests yeah. that you know, the idea of an artificial mind was not inconceivable. I'm sure he's particularly interested in what's happening now around uh, AI. Yes, yes, yes. And he believes we can live. I mean, he's been taking pills for years. He's been mocked for it. Yeah. But perhaps he will have the last laugh. Yep. Yep. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. That would, you know, if he lives forever, all of us will. So, um, but I think some of the things to watch in longevity. So if we can, we're starting to work on, for example, regenerating organs, right? So if you and I in 10, 20 years from now can get a new heart or a new liver or kidney that's been grown from our own cells, I, I think that's very likely. Right. And then if we're able to uh, cure cancer, you know, deal with um, there's a I, I see there's a huge potential to expand the human life in ways where we're also healthy. Um, it's not a given. Right. But it, it's also I, I can't guarantee that I won't be here 100 years from now or that you won't either. Like it, it's now a question that's up in the air. Well, if we are and we're still talking, it will be an interesting conversation. Uh, Darlene, finally, um, it, it seems as if, I mean, you have a very positive attitude. Kurzweil does and Diamantis does as well. Yeah. What, what's your take on uh, psychedelics and on technologies which, if you like, hack the body, hack our minds? Is this something you're comfortable with? This Might this be the most important exponential technology of the future, one in which we are always cheerful, where everyone will live in Sunnyvale, in sunny Silicon Valley? Yeah, so I might be an odd case, but I've never been that much interested in psychedelics personally, mainly because uh, my own life is already so interesting, right? I, 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 don't, I don't feel like I need to add anything to it or fix anything um uh, so i haven't had that that draw but i've heard that they can help a lot with if you're having you know addressing certain mental health issues that they can be very helpful with that so i'm not against them either but i also i haven't followed them as closely as i probably should um i'm also careful about uh how much technology i integrate into my life so um, for example, I don't use driving navigation myself. And part of that is that, you know, I heard from one of my colleagues at Singularity that like using your brain to make spatial decisions is so important to protecting you from 
you know, dementia when you're older, like you need to be thinking spatially and driving such a great example, but also, um, I like road trips. I kind of like getting lost. I like, you know, if I make the wrong turn, there's always something interesting to see. So I, I think and another, someone else who influenced my thinking was a woman named Ruth Chang, who gave a TED talk about how character develops when we make decisions. So if I, if I tell you, like, you can move to, um, uh, London or Kathmandu, it, it, you, you know, you, you need to make, you need to move to one of these places. You can't stay where you are. You might go through and create a list of all of the reasons you should or you shouldn't, but you still might not have a logical reason at the end of the day, but you might see yourself as actually, I want to spend my life in Kathmandu. I see my, that's who I see as myself as a future. And that's about character development. And, um, since understanding that, I've tried to be careful about what decisions I let technology make for me because I, I, I want to be the person who decides who I am in the future.